Good morning. It's really nice to see you all this Labor Day weekend. I know you had a lot of choices of where to be. You could be at the lake. You could be at families, but you chose to come here, and that's a great, great choice in my opinion. I love it here. I love worshiping here every Sunday, and it is so good to see my brothers and sisters here to worship with me. My name is Jason Averill, and uh, I am the pastor here at Grace, um, and this summer uh, we did a series on the attributes of God, and we have transitioned now into a series on who is Jesus, and that's we're looking at who our Savior is kind of in depth, and we're spending a lot of time in the book of Matthew while we do that. Last week, Wilson led us through a study of Matthew 4 on the temptation of Jesus, and it was beautiful and a brilliant sermon seeing the weights of temptation being put upon Jesus and how he never, never fell under the weight of that temptation. This week, we'll be looking at a key passage in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the one passage, if you were to pick one passage out of the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's the one passage that kind of helps you interpret everything in it. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you that you have drawn us here, that you have given us uh, good weather and good fellowship to worship in. And we thank you for building us into the image of our great Savior, Jesus. And we praise you, Lord, that you made worship a way to do that. Jesus, you are the true word, the true word that we long to hear. And we pray that you be present here as we turn to the sermon and worship you by studying your word, that you speak to us, that we hear your voice very clearly. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you illumine our hearts and our minds as we study our glorious Savior. Lord, as we study him, change us more and more to be like him. It is in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So, if you know the story of Jesus, you know that he was very, very popular with the masses. He was very, very popular with just the average Jewish person, with the sinners. You know, he ate with sinners. He worked miracles. He healed people. He was very, very popular. And as we move into chapter 5... He's actually gathered together a great crowd around him. And he goes onto the Mount of Beatitudes. They think they know where it is, but who knows. And he delivers this sermon. But you see, in spite of his popularity with the masses, in spite of the crowd that he drew, the Pharisees and the scribes, they frequently accused him of, of making light of the law. They accused him of abandoning the teachings of God. They accused him, rightly, actually, of making himself out to be God. And Jesus, right here at the beginning of his ministry, 
he goes and he answers those accusations. He knows that they're coming. He's heard some of them so far. When we read Mark, you know, he's already healed some people by the Sermon on the Mount. He's already had a little bit of conflict with the Pharisees. He knows their questions, and he wants to address their concerns, not for them, but for the people and for us. So, open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we will be reading from verse 17 to 22 and then 27 and 28. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. These are the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then skipping down to verse 27, Jesus continues, You have heard it said that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks with a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. Let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So Jesus has just started his ministry. The great crowds are gathering around him. And he, he needs to clear up some misconceptions about the law. And that's what the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is. That there are many, many misconceptions about the law and misconceptions about him particularly in reference to the law. And so he addresses the first, the first of those misconceptions right here in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says that he didn't come to abolish the law, what, what law is he talking about? Well, there are actually three different kinds of Old Testament laws. Sorry. I'm just going to try to make sure it doesn't squeak or chirp or whatever that is. There are three kinds of Old Testament laws in, in the Bible. The first is called the civil law, and this is the national law. It's the law that would guide the nation of Israel, and it was given to them for that purpose. We also had the ceremonial law. 
These are laws that deal with cleanliness and purity, with <clears throat> dietary uh, needs and sacrifices, with feasts, with circumcision. And then we have the moral law. The moral law, it's the Ten Commandments and any other law that would kind of flow from them. And now, these aren't discrete categories. There is some overlap. You know, the, the civil laws were inspired by the moral laws. But the civil law was given to Israel as a nation. But Israel is no longer a nation. And so, we kind of ask the question... What law is he talking about? Well, is he talking about the civil law? Well, we would say that he, he really can't be talking about the civil law because that was given to the nation for a particular purpose at a particular time to actually govern their citizens and restrain the evil of the men in their society. And the ceremonial law, is he talking about that? Did he come to fulfill the ceremonial law. We'll have more on that later, but yes, he did. And at the same time, that's not the law that he's actually talking about. If we go into Acts, we see that certain parts of the ceremonial law were actually done away with, especially many of the dietary laws. And so, we're left with the moral law. And indeed, if, if you look through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that Christ is talking about the moral law exclusively here. It becomes apparent whenever you read it that he's very focused on the morality of God. And he says that this moral law will not be abolished. He even goes farther than that. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He did not come to abolish the law. So how is the moral law different? The moral law is, was given to Israel to be a reflection of who God is. By looking at the moral law, we can actually see God in His glory, in His attributes, through the moral law. And the moral law is different because of that. It's reflective of His character, and His character cannot change. That's why it's permanent. Again, verse 18 says, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. Now, if you didn't know the iota, is actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew character Yod. So it's also a Greek character, but it is the translation of the character Yod. And that's the smallest of the Hebrew characters. And the dot that he's talking about is actually just one little dot that kind of distinguishes two Hebrew characters from another. And he's saying that nothing will pass away, not even anything so small as that. In Luke, he says it differently in another context. He says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one dot of the law to become void. 
And in Matthew chapter 24, he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. He hastens to teach us, Jesus does, that the moral law is unchanging, and it's unchanging for a particular reason. It's because he is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen. And because of that, the moral law doesn't ever change. And so he doesn't stop at not abolishing the law, though. No, he goes on in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes the least of these commandments, not even abolish, relaxes, that is, loosens them just a little bit, will be least in the kingdom of heaven. If you loosen just a little bit the least commandments, the least of the moral laws, if you could even grade them, they will be least. Modern Christians kind of do this sometimes. You know, there are whole denominations that have said that the Old Testament is, well, the Old Testament and not applicable to anything. And any law that's in the Old Testament really doesn't guide us at all. It doesn't apply to Christians at all. And Jesus has something else to say. Jesus says, no, no, nothing passes from the law. The law still stands. He did not come to abolish it. He did not abrogate it. He came to fulfill it. And that, that leads us to our second misconception. The second misconception, it's the one that the Pharisees wrestled with a lot, and it was over the substance of the law. What does the law actually teach? In verse 20, he starts off with this huge salvo against the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Wow. For the people listening to this, for those crowds of people, they looked up to the Pharisees and scribes because the Pharisees and scribes were holy people. They were people who tried all their might to do the law all the time. The scribes knew the law better than anybody. In fact, the Pharisees had developed 613 little rules just to help them follow the law. And they said, if you could follow these perfectly, you would keep the law perfectly. And yet, Jesus here is saying that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How could that be? How could that be? Well, the problem is that, again, with the substance. The Pharisees obeyed the letter of the law. They looked at the letter of the law, but they never looked past the letter of the law to at the actual substance of the law. What do I mean? So, when I was a little kid, um, my sisters are both older than I am, 
you know, one of them is five years older than me, one of them is 10 years older than me, and whenever they would aggravate me, there's not much that I could actually do to get back at them. I shouldn't have been trying anyway, but there wasn't much that I could do anyway, and so I would play the touching game, particularly in long car rides where, you know, I would just go and incessantly touch them all over until they just burst out and complained, stop touching me. And then, of course, my parents, one of them from the front seat, would say, Jason, stop touching your sister. And so, being a public schooler and learning this in public school, I would play the I'm not touching you game. I'm not touching you. And I would get the same reaction. And when my parents would get on to me, I said not to touch her. I would say, but I wasn't. And they would respond, but you know what I meant. I was obeying the letter of the law, not the substance of the law. I was doing, in my own little childish way, exactly what a Pharisee is doing to the law in general. And the ironic thing is that they're actually guilty of exactly what they accuse Jesus of. They accuse Jesus of lowering the law, lowering the bar, abolishing the law, teaching against it, particularly about the Sabbath because of all the times that he healed on the Sabbath. They were guilty of what they were accusing Jesus of. The letter of the law isn't good enough It's not good enough for us. No. That's proven in that little example that I gave. Like in earthly discipline, we know the letter of the law is not enough. Why on earth would we ever think that it would be enough for God? So what is the substance of the law? So Jesus has six examples in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We're only going to do two, the first two, which are kind of the easiest, I think. So, looking at verse 21, you've heard it said of those of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, this was a popular teaching back in the time from the rabbis, and of course, that's a faithful a faithful interpretation of Scripture. They're going all the way back to um, Genesis 9 when God has a covenant with Noah and he institutes the death penalty for murder. That's where they're going for this. So the rabbis actually had it right, but they stopped short. And Jesus goes on, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, it's pretty easy not to commit murder. In fact, the vast majority of humans that have ever lived have never, ever committed that sin, the letter of the law. 
vast majority of people go their entire lives with never committing it. But Jesus says that that isn't what the, that particular law is fully about. It's not about the letter of the law. It's not a, just about not murdering people. Murdering is bad, of course. But according to Jesus, it goes beyond the mere act. It goes deeper. It goes to the heart. Anyone angry with his brother is liable to the council, liable to judgment. That is, anyone who's angry with his brother has committed that sin of murder. The Apostle John goes a little bit further in 1 John 3.15, and he says, whoever has hatred in his heart for his brother is a murderer and will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In some of your translations, when we go on, it says in the ESV, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now that insult is actually the word raka. And it kind of meant idiot, blockhead. It was attacking someone's intellectual credentials, that they were just stupid. And you would be liable to the council or should be, just by hurling that insult at somebody. And if you were to utter the word more, which is Greek for fool, and a fool in this context is somebody who willingly goes after sin, and you're attacking their heart. You're saying that they have evil motives. Jesus says, that you would be liable to the fires of hell for doing that. We see that murder is bad, and it is bad, but Jesus says that being angry with your brother, insulting your brother, has, actually has the same heart behind it. The sin behind the sin is the same. Let's go on to verse 27. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, it's generally pretty easy not to commit this one. But Jesus says that the bar here is much higher than mere action. Again, it's our heart's intent. And this is what verse 20 actually means. For I tell you, verse 20 says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees lowered the bar. The bar should have been up here for adherence to God's righteous standard. The, God should, the bar should have been up here, and they lowered it to here, to mere action. doing exactly the same thing that they accused Jesus of doing. Do we do this? Do we lower the bar, ignore the deeper substance of the law, all in order to convince ourselves that we are a little bit better than we are? Yeah, I think we do. We all have our own sense of righteousness that is present in us. We want to cling to it. And we protect it 
and we ignore or intentionally lower the bar, all so that we can feel better about ourselves. But focusing on our outward action rather than our heart's intent, that's a mistake. It's a drastic mistake. It gives us a false sense of our own sinfulness or lack thereof. We never truly appreciate how sinful we are if we only look at our actions. It's only when we look at our heart that we appreciate how sinful we are. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what does it mean that he fulfilled the law? There are three things. So according to Knox Chamberlain, the first way that he fulfills the law, and the primary way in this context is that <clears throat> that word fulfill can actually also translate as complete or finish. And according to Chamberlain, it, <clears throat> looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and taking it in context, he came to teach us what the substance of the law is, that that's part of his fulfillment of the law, that we had no idea that the law went beyond mere action, the mere letter of the law, until Jesus came and taught a fuller law. He taught us that it is not the letter, it is the substance. And he is uniquely qualified to do that, too, since the law is a reflection of his character. He is actually the only one qualified to do that. The second, the second way that he fulfilled the law, Jesus came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promised Messiah. He came as the fulfillment of the Savior of his people, and he fulfilled all of the prophecies. And in that way, he fulfilled the law. He did it in order to save his people. And so, that leads us to the third way that he fulfilled the law. He obeyed it. He obeyed the law. He obeyed it fully and entirely, perfectly. You know, Wilson preached last week that wonderful sermon on temptation, and he had this illustration that he brought up from one of the theologians he looked at, and I forget who it was, but he said that Jesus is being tempted. You know, he is the only one to ever feel the full weight of temptation because he is the only one ever to never buckle under the pressure of that temptation. It just kept piling on, piling on, piling on. And the illustration was that of somebody squatting weights and constantly having 45-pound plates put on again and again and again. And Jesus never buckled under that temptation. And we see in a similar way that same thing here with the law. He is the only one, he is the only person to know the full weights of the law. He's the only person that's able to actually explain it to us. He's the only person that is able to feel the full weights of the law because he's the only person who actually knows the full weight of the law. And he kept it perfectly. He kept it outwardly, never outwardly committing any sin. And he kept it inwardly. In thought, word, and deed, he was righteous. At every 
every turn, he was righteous. If you want to know a little bit about, a little bit about the weight of the Ten Commandments, I'd encourage you to just go look up the Westminster Larger Catechism. Questions 98 to 148, that's all explaining the weight of the law. All explaining the weight of the Ten Commandments. Everything that's required, everything that's forbidden. It's intense. No. But he did that. He had to be perfect, and he was perfect. So, dear Christian, what does this mean for you? What does it mean that Jesus did not abolish the law, but instead fulfilled it? Verse 20, again, everything centers around this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We know, dear Christian, we know that our righteousness, our own personal righteousness, does not exceed that of the Pharisees. It doesn't even come close. We don't try half as hard even to keep the letter of the law, let alone the spirit of the law. No. No, we stand condemned by the law. Because even the Pharisees stood condemned by the law. But Jesus, Jesus came. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. He came and he lived that perfect life for us. He identified with us. He lowered himself and took on the form of a servant, took on flesh, and suffered under the misery and pain of this life, suffered under horrible temptation, and suffered under the full weight of the law for us at every turn. What does it mean that he didn't come to abolish the law, but instead came to fulfill it? It means that the law is fulfilled. It means that the law, though it's still active, though it's still real, it still exists because it's a reflection of his character, it means that we are no longer judged by the law. Dear Christian, if you are in Christ, you are not judged by the law. You are judged instead by Christ's righteousness. Your righteousness doesn't even come into play. It has been nailed to the cross with all of your sins. No, you stand before God in Christ's righteousness. You stand before God as somebody who has borne the weight of the entirety of the law and succeeded. That's what it means that he fulfilled the law. That's what it means that he fulfilled it for you. It means that forever, for all eternity, you will be in the kingdom of heaven. You will be with Christ. You will enjoy his presence and enjoy the smile of the Father. Never again fearing anything. Never again fearing his wrath, his discipline. Because you know that his full wrath has been poured out upon our Savior. You will have that forever fellowship. And it is something, a glorious thing to look forward to.
something to praise Him for. So dear Christian, praise Him for that. And let that hope grow in your heart. Let us pray. Father, it is almost too much. It is almost too much that you loved us so much that you would send your son and that he would come and live a perfect life for us, bearing the full weight of temptation, the full weight of the law, also that he could bring us home to you. And that you sent him to do that. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for being the fulfillment of the law for us. We thank you for restoring us to our fellowship with the Father and with your fellowship. Help us celebrate that every day, and especially today as we take communion. Holy Spirit, work in us. Focus our minds like a laser upon our, our Savior so that we're not distracted by anything and work in our hearts to change them so that even our hearts start to obey as we live life as redeemed people under the obedience of Christ. Amen.